All right, guys, back for another coaches roundtable. We we didn't get uh, to October. I think you guys were everybody was busy last month. So we didn't get to it. So back at it this month, November. Um, yeah, I guess we'll just start out. How's we obviously been chatting off air for about twenty minutes now. Already had a good <laughs> conversation, but um, I guess we'll just kind of dive in any update uh, training wise or anything. I know uh, Jeremiah, you had your photo shoot. Um, you also got engaged. Congrats, man! Super awesome. Thank you, dude. With that, um, hopefully, I mean, you obviously put it on. Instagram, so everybody knows now, but I didn't know yeah. if you wanted to announce it on the coaches round table or not. So um, I think I'm good with it. Yeah, we're good. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I guess, I guess we'll just start with, you know, how your, uh, how your photo shoot went and yeah. Yeah, man. Um, shoot went well. It feels like it's been forever ago since all that happened, but yeah, as you said, there was a lot, lots been going on prep for the shoot. I was very, very happy with how that went definitely brought the leanest condition that I have ever seen. So had some great coaching along the way. And I know Brandon and I have talked about that pretty in depth. We just dropped a podcast, just kind of summarizing thoughts, like what the peak week process looked like and things of that nature. But yeah, I'm really, really happy with how I brought myself to that and kind of what we were able to achieve. Um, engagement went extremely well. That was kind of a stressful couple of weeks, like trying to figure out the my photographer, like my photographer had canceled the night before my photo shoot like figuring out the, uh, my ring was stuck in customs. There were, there was just like hella stuff going on that week, like figuring out the trip to Hawaii and uh, a lot going on, but it, it went well. And now we are in a place where I feel like I'm eating a ton of food, but still feeling good. Um, I think the hardest thing and Brandon, and I'm, I know you can speak to this quite a bit as well. The hardest thing for me over the last couple of weeks has been, not pushing very hard in the training. And we, I know you talked about on this check-in where you're like, I know you have a lot of, you have a lot of food right now and like you're feeling good and you want to push, but like, we're not ready yet. I think that's been the hardest thing for me, but I can see the long-term and I'm excited to like, dig into blood work a little bit deeper with you as well and kind of see how things are looking there. It's been a bit since I've gotten labs done. Actually, I, th I think it was actually in our mentorship, Brandon, the last Brandon, time I got labs done. So wow. okay. I'm excited to get back, like just see how things are looking there. But yeah, um, that's really been, I think things have really calmed down since then. I don't really have too much to report outside of the shoot and whatnot. I guess since we have your coach on the, on the call, what's, <laughs> what's the reason for uh, just training volume, just keeping them low right now, just recovering type of situation or. Yeah. Cause all right. So when we really think about the post diet phase, and I'm not talking about like a, a quick reverse diet or something like if, if I've gotten a client lifestyle lean or sustainably lean, the recovery from that you've dig, you've dug a much smaller ditch, but we got Jeremiah to essential levels of body fat and to a place he had never been. So physiologically, psychologically, all these systems are down-regulated. So many of times I've gotten on the podcast with you, Jeff, I've gotten on with you, Jeremiah, I've spoken about metabolic adaptations. And really we see the severity of that being from the length of the diet, the depth of the diet, as well as the body fat that was attained. And he was at a level of body fat percentage that he had never gotten to. So there was a lot of, there's going to be a lot of physiological systems that are out of whack. We have to think about the fact that he was much lower than his lower intervention point or what many people, you know, when they hear that term, they don't really identify with it. So we'll call it the body fat set point. So he's much lower than that. And really what I've seen, and this is both through my own practice with myself, I've seen this with many clients who have gotten stage lean or photo shoot lean, is that a lot of times we get these transient changes within um, within energy availability. So for instance, I'm going to give you guys a perfect example because I'm sure you can relate to this. And anyone out there, even if you haven't gotten stage lean, if you get a refeed, 
could be two days of increased carbohydrate intake. You feel great during those days. And it's almost like you're not in the diet any longer. However, you go right back into those five days of deficit. All of a sudden you feel like death again. And so a lot of times what we feel in the moment psychologically from eating more food, you know, having a little bit more energy in the system, better training performance within those two days, it doesn't extrapolate out. So really what I've seen to be the most beneficial way of facilitating recovery is through multiple fronts. It's in increasing energy availability, specifically with carbohydrates. So increasing, you know, total calorie intake, you know, I've really taken more of a recovery diet approach with Jeremiah due to the body fat uh, level that he had gotten to. And then also we have to realize that there are multiple stresses in the system. So it's not the, the stress of dieting in itself. It's the stress of training. It's, it's all these multiple stresses, but also coaching is not just about nutrition and training. Yes, that is what I can control within Jeremiah's life, but he has a lot of life stress and he might not highlight on this, but we obviously have a great coaching relationship and he has a business that continually is progressing. So there's a lot of stress from a CEO, you know, founder perspective, from an administrative perspective, you know, looking after a team and, and really leading from the front. And so really as a coach, I only have so many modifiable areas. There's only so many things that I can control within Jeremiah's lifestyle and within his programming. So really I've seen very good benefits from going more to a minimum effective volume standpoint in terms of training. I've done this with myself and I'll share from my own experience. There were times, many times that I've gotten very lean and in the post-diet recovery phase, I've pushed up my my calories. And because I'm like, oh, I have more energy in the system. Let me push training volume. Let me push training intensity. And then I get eight weeks post-diet, 12 weeks post-diet, and I still haven't regained all of my physiological markers. My biofeedback still not in a great place. My sleep quality hasn't been restored. You know, my libido hasn't been restored. And then I'm someone that I'm very analytical with blood work. So I actually specifically told Jeremiah, he had wanted to get blood work initially right after getting back from vacation, which was less than two weeks post shoot. And I told him, listen, I've went over enough blood work over the years. I don't need to see what your markers are because I know your thyroid is going to be downregulated. I know your testosterone is going to be lower. We don't need to see that because it's only going to reinforce what I already know. And I'm going to be addressing these symptoms through your post-diet recovery phase anyway. So let's save the money and we'll do labs around the six to eight week point, which is what we'll do. But I've noticed within myself and with other clients, when we've pushed training volume, even though we're pushing uh, calories, it has led to a um, longer ret- uh, recovery time course, meaning we get labs eight to 12 weeks where I'm expecting, you know, much greater improvements in their labs as compared to, you know, one week post diet. And I'm not seeing as much of a steady, steady incline in certain markers. So their thyroid's not coming back online. Their cortisol is still elevated. They might still have increased reverse T3, which is essentially binding to the, the receptors on cells and blocking the metabolically active effects of T3. So this is just a way to facilitate recovery in multiple aspects. Cause just like we think about stress, stress does not get, you know, separate into different buckets. It's, we have an allostatic load. So a total stress bucket, which includes our training stress, our diet stress, our lifestyle style stress, you know, personal relationship, all these things. The same thing can be said about the systemic fatigue that can be accumulated through a long diet, through low levels of body fat, through training. And so really I'm trying to accelerate this course. So really it's, it's almost like taking a step to the side because we're not taking a step back. We're, we're improving things. However, we're taking a step to the side to accelerate him going forward um, more so that we can really make this post-diet phase 
you know, maximize really the intention of this. And the intention of any post-diet recovery is to facilitate recovery. So that's what we're really looking to do. And so that we can get into a more productive phase of building muscle, which is our goal after this in a quicker fashion, rather than extrapolating out that time course, pushing training volume when he feels great. And we get 12 weeks post-diet or eight weeks post-diet, his markers are still down-regulated. And now I have to put him into a health phase for six, eight, 12 weeks. Yeah. A couple of points there quick. First, I think it's important again for the listener to understand that how lean you got is a very important variable here. As you said, like if you just got lifestyle lean, we probably wouldn't need this like eight to 10 week period of low volume training. And then another thing that I appreciate is I feel like coaching is very much like a fine line of knowing like when to kind of go with like what the client wants versus when like we're sticking to our guns. And I know, I know I've been like subtly pushing like, Hey dude, I'm really excited to get into like this next phase where we're starting to push you hard again. And like just nothing with that. So I always appreciate that as well when it's like, all right, like you know, as opposed to like, I know, you know, that I want to get back to hard training ASAP, Absolutely. but like, I feel like that's such an important part of coaching where I talk about that all the time. Like, if we're just going with the client's whims, you're not any better off than if you were just coaching yourself. But as I always appreciate like seeing that in practice. And it's weird to like, I know this is the best thing for me, but still I'm like, you wouldn't do it for yourself. That's that's the issue. So you needed someone, we, we all do. So I have mentors as well. We need someone objective in our corner because coaching is not just about giving a client what they want. Because if I gave every client what they want, I would be dieting every client year round. However, <laughs> they'd be in that same yo-yo dieting circle. Yeah. They'd be on that same, you know, um, merry-go-round and doing the same things year in, year out and getting the same results. And a lot of people come to me because they want better results than they've had in the past. And if we continue doing what you've done in the past, including making the same mistakes that you've made in previous phases, you're never going to get better outcomes. It's like that Einstein quote that doing the same things over and over again, that's the definition of insanity. You're not going to get any better outcomes. So although I know I see your biofeedback, it's improving, especially from a psychological perspective, like you're, you're in it mentally. However, I know just based on experience, based on your own life. And I'm looking at all the factors. I'm taking a well-rounded perspective. I have a step back from this where you're emotionally tied into this process, as am I. However, it's it's easier for me to be able to clearly and concisely make decisions and say, listen, I know what he wants, but I need you to do this. So that's why we're doing like more of a maintenance volume phase, probably for between four to six weeks. We're going to go look at your blood work. And as soon as you know, I analyze things and see all the markers are back online, that gives us the green light to our next progressive phase. And I'm doing it for myself too. So, you know, just so you guys, you know, know that I leave from the front and everything I do, I, I would never ask Jeremiah or any client of mine to do something that I wouldn't be willing to do. You know, right now I'm currently in week seven of my post-diet recovery phase. And based on my own biofeedback and progression, I'll be continuing this phase out for a full eight weeks, most likely. Then I have a planned deload. I'm going to get blood work during that week because I'm, I'm a real big fan of deloading during blood work because of the transient changes that could be impacted on blood work through hard progressive training. We're going to have muscle protein breakdown um, increases from hard training that's going to throw off liver values like AST and ALT. It could deviate kidney values. There's many things that could be deviated from just from continuing to train. So I'll take a few days off. I'll go get blood work and then I'll do an analysis and then I will send it to one of my mentors. So I get a clean and non um, emotionally tied base, you know, cause sometimes I'll see something and I'm like, you know, that's all right. But someone, I, I like people in my quarter that are extremely objective and say, no, this we need to really work on. And then once I get them back and I assess them where I am from a physiological and internal you know, health perspective, that the plan is after that for me to start my own building phase. So really what my 
you know, trajectory is I'll start progressing my food and training volume up even more at that point, which will not only allow me to titrate up my calories and continue doing so, but it really how I have this plan, because I'm really a big fan of periodization, especially within my own training is, you know, training and nutrition is that it will align right with the holidays. So I'll be able to start eating more progress, you know, both my training, both my calories. Um, so it aligns from both a training and nutrition periodization perspective, and then also a life perspective. So this is, you know, generally what I would hope for other clients, but there are times, and this is where I'm going to share my experience. There have been times, you know, that I've had other clients that have either, I haven't taken a more conservative approach with training. Like I've really increased their calories from an energy availability perspective, from a biofeedback perspective, everything looks great. They're feeling great. They're training great. They're getting progressive increases in the gym. We're seeing that their training is really like going swift especially compared to the dieting phase. And from all the feedback that I have from them and even their internal markers, their blood glucose, the resting heart rate, their blood pressure, they all are trending in a positive direction. When I get their blood work, things are still down-regulated, especially my natural athletes, especially guys that have gotten very lean because I've worked with many natural um, natural competitors and natural pros at this point. And so then we have to pull back even more when we should have just pulled back initially after the diet and really you know, bought our time then. So it might be time for me to make the switch to the dark side. That's what you're saying. <laughs> I'm not <laughs> suggesting anything big this time next year. <laughs> Getting big. Um, no, I like that you 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 mentioned too that you're going to wait to get his blood work too because, like you said, if he just did it afterwards, it would be worth like worthless essentially because he's just going to be everything's going to be downregulated at that point. Like you said, it's going to tell you what you already know um, at that point. Yeah, I I really think you know when I when I say this, keep in mind, guys, I have assessed thousands of labs before. But, you know, I've done, yeah, I've, I've you know, one of the biggest mistakes I ever made in my coaching was early on. I was so enthused with blood work that I made clients get it every eight weeks. I yeah. mean, I really wanted to, and it gave me great practical application skills. It gave me great experience, but it got to the point where I used to get feedback from clients. You know, right now I have a very long retention rate with clients, but one of my questions after a client would decide to stop coaching was what were some of the positives and negatives? What were some of the main drawbacks? And one of the number one ones I got in 2017 was I asked for blood work too often and they thought it was just an extra expense. And I understand. And I actually shared this with Jeremiah in our mentorship. Like we get bloods when we need to, and yes, we want to do them frequently, but not more frequently than needed. So a lot of coaches in this industry are making expectations or, or placing expectations on clients where it's like, you have to do a Dutch test. You have to do, you know, a GI map and all these tests that are five, $600 out of pocket. If you really know, and I'm not, I'm not against blood work whatsoever. I'm very big into lab analysis. Every ment mentorship program that I do, I teach blood work and how to assess it, how to an analyze it and how to mitigate the issues that you might be seeing on blood work. However, it's a tool in the toolbox. And if someone, if you're with a client and they're investing into you, you need to be able to treat them and treat their symptomology and fix their issues without always relying on continuous lab testing, especially at a very frequent basis, because we have to realize that coaching is an expense. It's an investment, but so are these blood tests. So if you have to really take it on a client by client basis, I have certain clients, especially like in Australia, I have a client that gets blood work every four to six weeks because he doesn't pay for it whatsoever. So any blood work that he wants, he goes into his GP, he makes a request and he gets the blood work done. So it's a very easy process. He doesn't have to take any time of work off. You know, he works at home. So these are things that are very feasible for him and they're not a financial constraint. But if I have someone that doesn't have health insurance or pays out of pocket for blood work, I'm going to be a little bit more conservative with the frequency in which I request testing, because that is why I'm so analytical on my check-ins. Like Jeremiah, I can tell you, I'm checking, you know, both objective and subjective metrics in a very in-depth perspective every single week. So I'm making sure that if someone cannot afford that, 
to do more than say two two um, courses of blood work per year, that I'm able to fill in the gaps and really assess their internal uh, health uh, on a frequent basis, on a week to week check in basis. So it, labs are great. All these tests are great. I really love that we're coming out with more and more testing, but we can't be super reliant on that because that is not going to fit every client's psychology and their budget. Would you, so like if obviously with Jer, with Jeremiah, like you're going to wait a little while, partly because he's just got out of dieting and he got super lean, super shredded. If it's somebody that is maybe more of a lifestyle client, would that change when you do that? Or would you still wait, you know, a little bit of, again, obviously taking into consideration all those things that you just said, would you yes, still wait as well for somebody like them too? Yeah, it's, it's going to be very heavily dependent on their biofeedback. If I see yeah. a lot of negative indices that, you know, and this is often the case. Um, Actually, I, I do it a little bit differently, but a lot of times when I have clients come to me who have already dieted themselves and they have a lot of negative biofeedback markers and I do a consultation with them and they have a lot of symptomology of hypothyroidism or subclinical hypothyroidism, you know, they're cold, they're having you know, brittle hair, uh, brittle nails, uh, losing hair. Like a lot of, I have a lot of females come to me in this uh, position and I fill in their micronutrient you know, status. Like I make sure I'm looking at their chronometer data. Like I'm typing in all the foods that they're eating. I see that they're nutrient deficient and I fill in those gaps and I'm still not seeing an alleviation of those symptoms. Say within the first four weeks, I'm putting them right into getting blood work. And that's, I'm making a suggestion saying, listen, I need your baseline. But in Jeremiah's case, first and foremost, his biofeedback has been great throughout the entire course, even getting to as lean as he did. Second of all, I've tested, I've had enough athletes in his position test at that level of blood work or at that level of leanness to know the indices. Like I could tell them off the top of my head exactly, or very closely to what I'm going to see. Obviously there's um, genetic inter-individuality between clients, but there were no sub or there were no objective markers that were so out of range that I thought that I needed to get it testing immediately then. So I told them, listen, from a budgetary perspective, let's wait until six to eight weeks post-diet rather than two weeks post-diet and really get something that will give me a, a data that will then I'll be able to really assess where you are and where we can go going forward. Whereas if I'd gotten two weeks post show or post post um, photo shoot, I already know where they are and I'm already going to be implementing certain things within his programming to mitigate those things. Yeah, that that makes sense. Uh, look, you know, again, paying attention to the biofeedback, and I'm sure too as you get more advanced with it as well too, and you get more experience, you probably have a good idea again of like if people are showing certain signs or symptoms, you have an idea of what's going on and you don't necessarily always 100%. need to get that, that blood work either. Uh, but sometimes, you know what, I, I do want to make a, a caveat to that because there are oftentimes like with Jeremiah, I can have an objective conversation. We've had a relationship for quite some time. There's a lot of mutual respects, but sometimes someone comes to me and they're a brand new client. They don't know me from the hole in the wall. We're just creating a relationship. And I tell them, listen, a lot of your symptomology is leading me to believe that you might be hypothyroid. I am yeah. not a doctor. I'm not trying to step outside my scope of practice and nor am I trying to give you a diagnosis or this self-limiting belief about you being quote unquote damage or anything of that sort, but all your symptoms are leading to this. You're having weight loss resistance. There's a lot of symptomology within your own feedback, your biofeedback, and then also your body's response to certain things. You're always cold and there's certain you know symptoms that I'm seeing in both your consultation and then also in your check-in forms. And I really would like to, you know, peel back the layers of the onion and really dig in deeper. And it's almost like you would just, you know, we would normally get our car checked, you know, quite regularly to make sure it doesn't break down. Let's do the same thing with your body. And often what I find with newer clients that don't have experience with coaches that do blood work, because I have many clients that come to me that I say, Hey, listen, when was the last time you got blood work? Oh, well, my coach never asked me for it. So I haven't had it in two or three years. That's really where I have to educate them on the, a, the importance of blood work. And then B, there are times that I might tell someone, listen, 
your symptoms really sound like such and such. You know, I've had people come to me with autoimmune diseases and I'm seeing very similar symptomology that I've seen in some of my other clients that have these specific, you know, let's say PCOS or have Hashimoto's thyroiditis. And I'm saying, listen, I'm not trying to diagnose you, but I've had similar clients with these similar symptoms and they're very specific. And this may be something we want to look into when they are kind of in denial. You know, a lot of people, they'll put their heads in the sand. They don't want to get blood work. They don't want to, you know, a lot of times we want to focus on the things we want. We want fat loss. You know what I mean? These clients want fat loss. They don't want to address the internal issues they might be dealing with. They kind of want to just put a bandaid on it. And that's where utilizing blood work to just bring awareness. Like, listen, these are certain, you know, issues that we need to deal with. So let's go into a primer phase. Let's really prioritize your internal health and rectifying some of these issues. You know, you might've accumulated this over 10 years. I recently had a girl come to me and she had the highest fasting insulin levels that I had ever seen. I mean, to where she would be diagnosed type two diabetic. And the fact was that her blood glucose was in range. So she was at 99, but let's consider the fact that the range is from 65 to, to 99 and then hundred and over is pre-diabetic. So she was one milligram per deciliter away. However, we have research that shows that anywhere above 85 for every one milligram per deciliter over 85 milligrams of blood sugar for fasted is a 6% increase, um, incidence of developing type two diabetes in the next 10 years. So she's 14 times six, whatever the math comes out to, you know, 84% more predisposed to type two diabetes in the next 10 years in conjunction with the fact that her fasting insulin were way above the reference range. Like I wouldn't want someone about like six to eight, she was at 36. And so that's where I had, you know, she wanted a fat loss phase, but I said, listen, we need to work on restoring your health and really addressing this first and foremost, not putting more stress in the system because you could have stress induced insulin resistance. You could have lifestyle induced, uh, you know, uh, insulin resistance. This could be from your nutritional. We need to really peel back all the layers of the onion, look at your blood work and really get a fair assessment and really work on this first and foremost, before we go down the path of really focusing on your physique composition. Whereas if you would have if you were like Jeremiah just said a little bit ago, where if you just kind of let the co- the client decide what's going to happen, what would you what would end up happening? They'd be in the same position over and over again. So again, you know, I think I think that's super important. I got I got a couple questions here uh, for, for Jeremiah too. So and Brandon, you probably can answer one of these as well. But so first, Jeremiah, did you have were you happy with the amount of muscle that you had when you got lean? Did you think you had more than uh, what you thought? Or you know, I'm just curious to hear your thoughts there. And then after that, like what's kind of the, the game plan there for the building phase um, for you moving forward. I don't think I've ever been happy with the amount of muscle that I've had, but <laughs> yeah. those quads. I was happy with, yeah, that is very true. I've, but that's a brand. And I have talked about it quite a bit. Um, lower body uh, at the end of the process, I realized I had quite a bit more muscle tissue there yeah. than I thought your legs, I did. Your legs did look you know, really shredded. I was was pretty surprised by that. And they were not huge by any means, but bigger than I expected. Um, my adductors specifically have always grown a ton and I've always had like big ass, like turn up looking legs, but it's never like, I've never been able to really see my quads much. So that was an interesting development and I was happy with that. Um, upper man, I would say it's very hard for me to say objectively, honestly, I don't think what our lowest weight was 177 there. I really haven't thought about it too much. I was happy with how I'll say like, I'm, I'm happy with where I was at. I think I've probably put on a bit of tissue since the last time. I don't think I put on a crazy amount by any means, but it's also very hard for me to be objective with this um, versus someone from the outside looking in. 
I wish I had a better answer than that, but I think I would actually have to sit down and like, I need to actually like compare my pictures side by side. I know that I don't think I looked as skinny as I did last time I got to this point. But I think that also, again, I was talking to you guys about like Natalie's photo shoot prep. So very similarly, like she's very hard on herself. Same thing here. I think that it's, it's very hard to be objective there. I definitely, I do think I got a bit bigger. I, I will say like lower body, my first photo shoot prep, I just had like stick legs. So I do think I added quite a decent bit to my lower body. But again, it's, I, for me to say that, certainly I want like more objective data. So really, I don't want to just like go by feel and I can't say because I really haven't compared much of like how I ended that prep versus the first one. Gotcha. Yeah, I think that's, it, it is, I mean, dude, it, it is hard to look at yourself and be, like you said, objective and and whatnot on it because we're always our own worst critic. And like you said, you're, when I asked that question, I was like, the first answer is always going to be, you never have as much muscle as you want to have. You always want to have more for sure. I think that's, that's yeah. always going to be that way. So I guess then for you, um, move forward building phase probably coming up is from what you said. Um, I don't know if there's any, and Bram, this might be geared more towards you. Is there anything specific for him that he, you feel like he needs to work on? Um, like in terms of like bringing up certain body parts, or is it just going to be kind of just full body type everything? And then is there going to be any methods that you might implement spe- like especially for his building phase? Yeah. So I think this is a two pronged question because there's a difference between what my opinion is from a coaching perspective and then what Jeremiah wants. And we're going to go in the middle with that. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm all about giving a client not only what they want, but also what they need. And it's really a blending between the two. It's the same thing as, you know, a lot of people come to me and they know that I, I, I've done advanced coaching for quite some time. They're looking for optimality, but within the constraints of their lifestyle, that's not realistic. So what do I do? I look for a blend between what's optimal for their goals and then what's practical for their lifestyle constraints. So I'm trying to optimize within the their lifestyle constraints. So I know Jeremiah has expressed multiple times that he wants to do a leg specialization cycle. And that was really early on into the fat loss diet. But I think that we really saw that his legs are more developed than he thought. From a coaching and objective perspective, I do think he needs to bring his chest up. So really how I do specialization cycles, it's it's based on a client-by-client basis. So it isn't like there's a set and forget principle. You guys know I'm, I'm not a fan of that whatsoever. So really how it'll come down to it is after the recovery phase, I will sit down and Jeremiah will ha- and I will have this discussion in person um, or you know through Zoom or whatever it may be. But I will do my own needs analysis on Jeremiah's photos both from the photo shoot itself, from where we started, the photo shoot itself, and then at the last week of his recovery dieting phase. And this is what I do with all my athletes, especially advanced trainees, because we have to realize that our rate of muscle growth at this point is slow and steady. So we really have to nail down, we have to take a very focused and methodical approach. And so within that, based on his training experience, based on the background that he has, the years that he has training, and just the level of advancement that he's at, we're I'm going to prefer to go towards um, specialization cycles. That's what I've seen work best within myself and with many of my advanced athletes. And it's also something that Jeremiah and I have discussed in detail. We've done a full podcast on it and something he's expressed interest in seeing how I program them. So that's where we'll sit down and we'll decide what is our priorities? Because it's not just about, he's not a competitor. So I'm not going to sit down and tell him like with my athletes, it's funny. You just recently, I had one of my pros who he's transitioning out of you know, pro competing, he's deciding that he wants to focus more on his career than competing. And so I just reconstructed his, his next mesocycle. And I sat down and I said, listen, we don't, you don't have to go based off of what I think you need to work on or what the judges said you need to work on. Now it's all about you. You want to blow up your arms and have them disproportionate to the rest of your body. By all means, let's do it. 
Like I'm, I'm all for it. So it's going to be based on Jeremiah's preference, but also at one point, I do believe that we're going to have to utilize a specialization cycle for his chest to just bring it up in, in proportion to his deltoids and especially to his back. His back came in uh, exceptionally well. He's got a good connection with his back, despite saying that he didn't feel some of the exercises. His back came in in uh, great. And that's something that a lot of people they're lacking in the back. So generally, if you ever notice a lot of my clients, you guys can look up on my Instagram page. I'm kind of known for building backs, um, because I've had to specialize so much with it with many of my clientele because shows predominantly there's a saying shows are one from the back. So when I work with competitors, I do a lot of back specialization cycles, but I would like to incorporate a chest specialization cycle. But if, you know, we get to the needs analysis, I do my own on my own. And then I do a consultation with Jeremiah and he's still locked in on legs. That's what we're going for. That is so interesting because that is the exact opposite of what I would have told you my weaknesses are. Now, I'm glad. I think we could both agree on calves, but if you were like, yo, we're focusing on calves, <laughs> I don't know if I would have been on board with that. That is, that's funny though, because I would have thought, I have always thought of chest as being my strength. I, I don't know. That's, that's interesting. And I've always kind of had like legs are a weakness. And I would have thought even like, uh, I know like from, I think it's much harder to like, look at, like to me, when I see myself in progress pictures, it's like, that's not me. You know what I mean? Like it's so much different than what you see in the mirror. So I think that's part of it being objective, but I'm glad we had this conversation though. Cause that is a lot different. Cause I want to get your take on that as well. Like objectively, what do I need to focus Absolutely. on? And a chest would have been actually the last thing that I would have thought. Cause I've always thought that would have been a strength. That's, that's interesting. Now, I think your deltoids are more of a strength than your, your chest is, objectively speaking. And I saw it as it flattened out. I also think that we have to realize you got into a different condition. A lot of times we're hiding a lot of our weak points and we're also mm-hmm. sometimes our strong points we don't even realize. So with your quads, you thought that was a weak point, but now he's, he's checking his chest. But um, you know, I'm just speaking from objectively speaking, like when I looked at your photos and I looked at your posing, especially, and that was something that I had Jeremiah do that I, I don't think you had ever done previously. Like no, actually doing posing every, yeah, every single week I had him do posing. Um, in terms of sending me pictures after specific workouts. And even as you diet it down, generally our weak points are what we lose first. You did lose chest fullness. I noticed that uh, quite substantially. And uh, really when we look at it from like a chest to back, um, yeah, I don't want to say ratio perspective, but your back was really, I, I don't want to say, I, I want to say it's development outpaced your chest. So I think yeah. that b- bringing up both or bringing up your chest would help with full body balance. No, I will also say like, since I hurt my AC joint, it has been interesting to see, like, I mean, part of it is I never got surgery on this, right? So my, I'm my shoulder essentially isn't attached to my collarbone anymore. And it is like all my presses have become, and that's just before that it was very much like when I started training, just train chest five days a week, but that has, I think it's more so like where I used to be. Whereas I have definitely noticed like specifically in my left shoulder, I have kind of like a bolder shoulder, which is very much, I think just to, it has to be to stabilize that shoulder joint. Now, definitely my presses are more dealt a bit more dealt biased now than they used to be, but that's super interesting. Uh, one thing on the posing that is dude, that is freaking tough. Like you, it looks easy, but it's like, you get up there and it's like, man, this is freaking, I mean, it's, it's tough, dude. I remember from my, I haven't done it and I'm, I think it's just like, it's a skill, just like anything. I haven't done it in, in forever. And I know I'm sure I'm back to where I was when I first started, but man, I mean, it took, you know, a couple months to get it down and it's awkward as hell. If you, if you don't do it regularly, you think, you know, you think like we do that all the time, but it's like, you know, once you actually try to strike a pose that looks good, it doesn't, it, it's, it's tough, especially back. So I, so I knew specifically that Jeremiah didn't pose because he has no mirrors in his gym. 
So I knew he wasn't flexing all the time. You know what I mean? And I saw the lighting he was using and I was like, listen, let's practice this. And also, you know, a lot of people will poo-poo the mind muscle connection. You know, that's the, sh- you know, <laughs> yeah. the name of your show. But I really do believe that a mind, a better mind muscle connection can just be from contracting in and of itself, just due to flexing. So just remember you the photos that we took of Jeremiah or the photographer took of Jeremiah or that you see of me, this isn't a pose. So if we're not able to pose and display our body properly, it doesn't matter how great our physique looks because we're never going to display it to the best of our, our ability. So when a photo shoot is the goal or a contest, you know, a show is the goal, we have to be able to present things accurately and to the best of our ability. Really bodybuilding in and of itself is an illusion. So it's, you know, bodybuilding is, you know, a bi- an ability to display. That's why it's bar- both an art and science. So if we look at someone like Alberto Nunez, he looks massive in these photos, but if you really think about it, he's 160 pounds. He's not a, you know, he's very muscular individual, very lean, incredibly balanced, Super lean. <laughs> but his ability to stand there. If you ever look at his front relaxed pose, he makes everyone else look smaller within his weight class because yeah. he has such a great ability to pose. And he's a master of that same thing with Jeff Alberts. He's a master for poser. Eric Helms, beautiful poser. These are guys, Eric is around my height. And I believe he gets on stage around 170 something pounds. Very, you know, I'm, you know, when I was on stage, I was 205 immense physique. So it's, it's a drastic difference, but his ability to look large and really display himself to maximize his stature and his structure is due to his practice and also his love of, you know, um, old school posing. So it really is an illusion. I think it's something that many could benefit from, you know, instead of just taking selfies, we're not taking photos at all. Really incorporating that if you want to display a better physique you got to flex you got got to pose it and you have to get used to contracting your body because photo shoots are a workout you know i mean in and of itself you'll be exhausted so i had you know jeremiah with a nice large intro workout during that photo shoot because i knew he was going to be pumping up and we're trying to maintain a pump but also getting you know the best photos for that day to present his physique in the best lighting possible yeah it it really is you know i'm glad you brought that up because it really is all about how you know you you work that work angles and you can make yourself look you know it's like you said it's an illusion and you can make yourself look way bigger where sometimes you see some of these guys that they they are really good posers and then when you see them in a more relaxed position it's like wow you definitely you know doesn't doesn't look the the same um i've kind of like i've made a post on this too about like you know a lot of people want to get like a leaner looking midsection and i think like part of it is a lot of times people just focus strictly on like building their abs when it's like, if you like build up like your shoulders and like, you know, your upper body and stuff like that, like you can give yourself that illusion that you have a, you know, kind of a smaller waist there. So cool. Any, anything else, uh, that we want to go over before we, uh, hop into the questions or we, I think we're what 35 minutes in now. So we <laughs> we're like an episode in already. Right. <laughs> yeah. We got to get into it, but luckily, yeah. uh, some of the topics that we're covering are, are very similar to what we've been yeah. discussing. Yeah. So I think we'll, we'll start with, uh, you know, we've been talking about reverse dieting, so we'll, we'll start with that. And there's, there's two questions here that, that Brandon brought that we'll, we'll talk about. So, um, I don't know if we want to tackle these separately or if we want to go one by one, but I'll just start off with the first one. Why do you think there's been such a debate between reverse and recovery diets lately? Um, and I know you had that second question, so I don't know if we want to wait to tackle that or if we just want to tackle it all at one time. Yeah, let's go through this one first and then we could tackle yeah. the second one separate. Um, I'll start it off. Um, you know, honestly, there's been a lot of like debates and, you know, rebuttals back and forth in the industry regarding reverse dieting. And I think the reason why there's been so much, you know, back and forths and arguments and debates about like the reverse versus recovery diets in our space is because honestly, if we look at it, the nutrition industry has become like an industry where it's, it's really popular, but it's really common for two things to occur. First, people like to put themselves into camps and they align with a group to relate to others and be able to kind of like stake their claim 
which they live and die by. So they have a belief and they want to defend that belief. And, and oftentimes the best way to do that is to be a little bit controversial. So, you know, just the fact that they have an opposing viewpoint or an opposing belief or approach, you know, causes controversy. And it, if we look at it, that's what generates more attention and increases their exposure, especially when it comes to social media. Whenever, like when we, us three are pretty like aligned with our beliefs and stuff, and we don't put anything controversial out. We're just generally trying to help people and give evidence-based and evidence-informed content. That's like kind of the moderate road. And I understand that's not a sexy. And there's many times that people have DM me or listeners of the show and have tried to get me to, you know, rebuttal or argue against specific person's claim. And Jeremiah can tell you himself that there's been times I've received questions in, in the question. It's about a specific influencer. And I will not name that influencer because I don't believe in tearing someone else down to, you know, build up one of my arguments. It's about, you know, presenting the information and just um, really what I'm trying to do is inspire critical thought. So when I, you know, you know, list a study, whether it be in a post or I speak about a study on a podcast, it's just to give people a little bit more education, empower them through that. It's not about breaking anyone down and really tearing down their reputation in the process. And as with any concept of nutrition, you know, the other issue that we really have within our industry as a whole is that with any concept of nutrition, when something gets mainstream, like in the case of reverse dieting, it often gets simplified so much that we lose the true context behind that concept and it kind of gets mm -hmm. lost in translation. So what I think is the oversimplification of reverse dieting and what it has been made out to, you know, to be has caused many to think that, you know, a reverse diet is this just simple addition of say 10 grams of carbs a week or five grams of fat per week, instead of realizing it's an approach that centers around the principle of increasing calorie intake, improving energy availability and facilitating diet recovery. But there's so much more context to be considered when making adjustments based on the individual client that we're working with and their physiological and psychological state and their proclivities. And that is where a lot of the nuances are left out because and we really have to consider that a reverse diet is a principle. It's a principle of increasing calories. It isn't the set and forget, you know, protocol where it's only 10 grams of carbohydrates or it's only five grams of carbs per week. And really, when I look at it, I'd approach each client um, in a different way. So I think we really need to realize that just because um, reverse and recovery dieting are defined as X on an infographic on Instagram doesn't mean that's how a coach with tons of experience working with real world clients is going to go about and implement a reverse or recovery diet. Just like, you know, when we really think about it, like think about all the information that a lot of us put out on volume. Uh, a lot of times if we make like a general post, we'll, you know, make a recommendation and it'll be, you know, to maximize hypertrophy, train a muscle group between eight to 20 sets per week or per muscle per week. And, but that doesn't mean that's how we, or that's the approach that we take with every single person that we work with. So I think it's important to realize that our approach needs to be individualized. And I also think it's important to point out that many of those who are taking a side in this debate and either siding with the benefit of reverse dieting or recovery dieting, they're kind of like picking a camp are doing so based on their area of specialty and background. So for example, we have a lot of researchers talking on this topic, but their point of view is coming from research, which I'm all for. Believe me, I'm, I'm very into you know looking into research, looking at the literature, but there's two issues with this. We got to think about the fact that at this point, there are no direct randomized controlled trials that look at using a reverse diet approach versus utilizing a recovery diet approach after a fat loss phase to see what's the best method to take. However, what do we know from the evidence that we do have? We do know that having a plan in place, regardless of the plan, whether it's a reverse diet or a recovery diet, and having a phase to transition into after the diet is a crucial part of the process of long-term body composition progress. 
as the main thing out of all of these things, the main thing that we see in the research is that in the vast majority of cases, those who go on a diet and lose weight will regain all the weight and fat they lost after finishing the diet. And often many gain even more. So they end up in a worse place from both a body fat, a body composition, and a metabolic health perspective after finishing the diet and going back to their previous lifestyle and falling off the wagon again than they were at the start. So because of the lack of research, a lot of those on the research side are using data on relative energy deficiency in sport, which is a great line of literature. But the thing is, it's really not applicable to every person, especially for those who diet that are in the general population. They're not getting to these low levels of unsustainable body fat. And also by only going, like only looking at the research, we discount the fact that evidence-based coaching isn't just about what has been found in the research as being truly evidence-based is a combination of using peer-reviewed quality research. So they got that, but you also have to use your own experiences as a coach and the goals, the preferences, and the abilities of the individual person that you're working with. And then when we look at it, so we have the research side, but then on the other side, we have individuals who are just strictly coaches and don't look at the research. And they honestly, a lot of them disregard any of the research that we do have. So they base their content, their information, and their opinions solely based off their own experiences and what they've seen with clients, which is anecdotal experience or anecdotal evidence, but it also clouds their ability to see the value in what the literature provides us with. So, you know, because we don't have, you know, direct control trials on post-diet approaches, I think we as coaches, if you want to be a quality coach, you know, we have to take the limited data that we do have and combine it with our own personal experience, working with clients to determine what the best strategy for the individual client who just finished the fat loss phase a photo shoot prep or a just a regular diet and use that data to decide whether we use a reverse or recovery dieting approach, which is why, like, if you were to ask me and I had this specific individual ask me after, like, which one do I align more with a recovery diet or a reverse diet? And I don't side with either. I'm going to, you know, the approach that I take is me based on the clients that I, the individual client I work with, because I work with clients from so many different backgrounds that I use both approaches and it's based on the needs of the person that I'm working with. So there isn't like this one set answer that I can give anyone. Like it's always a reverse diet or it's always a recovery diet. We have to consider context and realize that a lot of times people are trying to simplify things down so much that they're making it as though one approach is one thing and one approach is the other and not realize there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of commonalities in the middle. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that, that's a good point. And I'm glad you, you brought up that last point. I think it's the simplification of it where it's like, Hey, this is what a reverse diet is. And like, then that's how it's used for every single person. And I think it's just all like semantics at that point. And people like want to like put a like word to what they're doing. Right. And I think with reverse dieting, it's like, it becomes, and I think it's the same thing with like, when we say things like many cuts too, right? Like people think of, they hear the word many cut and they think it's this like, cut where it's just, you know, super, super short and you lose a bunch of body fat, but we know that like to, to use, like how we would use it would be different than like what people think. Right. But they hear many cut and they think that that's what it is when there's like, again, it's used for a certain purpose. And like, same thing with like building phases or like massing phases or stuff like that. I just feel like these are just like words that we do need to put to it. And then within that, it is very like, it's different in terms of what we're, how we're actually going to use it. Right. So like reverse dieting, like you mentioned where like some people think of like reverse dieting as you only, you add like 10 grams of carbs each, each week. Right. And that's like, when you come at it with that frame of, with that mindset, it's like, yeah, that might not be great for a lot of people. But for me, like reverse dieting also is something where it's like you said, we're just getting, it's, we're just getting somebody back up to, to maintenance or like just recovering from the diet that they just had. Right. And so like, I think it just comes down to naming things. And then like people try to make 
make it out like it's just this one way of doing things, kind of like you said there. And it's just it's just semantics at that point. So that was just kind of what I wanted to to talk about there with that. Yeah, I think like there's so much value in like long form conversations like this because there's so much context. And that's like even like I know Brandon, we talked about this after our last podcast, where like probably need to be more careful about how we speak about reverse dieting. But I've seen the same thing the last couple of weeks. I've realized even with like building phases, like I talk a lot about hey, a building phase might be the thing that's holding you back from achieving the physique you want. But that's because like a huge amount of the individuals we work with are like extremely lean women who are very, very afraid to like let go of that and ever eat more food. But I've really seen like a couple, I've had a couple conversations where it's like, hey, we're misapplying this idea to like with the situation you're in, like we don't need to be actively pushing to like see the scale increase and continue to push food higher. So it's, I, that's something that I'm always working on is like, <laughs> like so much of like our, what we do is delivered through Instagram where it's like 2,200 characters. Yep. They say it's 2,200 characters, but it's actually like 2,150 or something <laughs> like that. Uh, I'm constantly checking my word count whenever I'm writing captions, but anyways, like, and just like trying to squeeze that into it. But yeah, I think it's just understanding like the context, like all these different things the context of it is so important, like reverse dieting, recovery dieting. I don't think there's actually, I don't know if there's that. There are definitely people out there that are like, Hey, we don't reverse diet. I think it's largely like, if we're talking about like, why is it so popular? I think it's largely a discussion like coaches, but like between coaches rather than like clients out here, like, Hey, should I recovery diet or should I reverse diet? But I think it's just, again, like largely just understanding there's, there's a context for, most like for most things there's a context where it's going to apply and i think it's understanding that more than anything else i'm glad you i'm glad you brought up the building phase one too because that is one that i see like misapplied right and like i think with the reverse dieting it's mis- misapplied in that again you get somebody that's like you know say they're not like losing weight when they're like overweight and then they're like oh it's i just need a reverse diet and whatnot and then i'll start it's like again the misapplication i think a misunderstanding of like what's going on and i think that was um you know, what I, like we talked about off air, like the big thing that kind of stirred up this re- reverse dieting thing was stronger by science podcast. Right. Um, and, and bringing it up. And I think he was like mo- mostly trying to hit on, like, it's not this like magic thing to like, get you to like, you know, just lose body fat because you're, you're under eating. Right. And so you just need to increase calories. Um, but yeah, again, some semantics there with that. And I think the other one too, is like, that gets misapplied uh, with this kind of thing too, is like body recomposition too. Right. Where it's like, people also think of that one as like, they just think like one way with it. And again, there's context that needs to go into it and there's different ways to go about it as well too. So that was just another one there. Um, I don't know if you guys had anything else to to add to that. Yeah. I mean, I know like I saw you post about the under eating thing the other day where like a lot of people think they're not losing because they're under eating. And that's, I know I was, I spoke to this on like Aaron and Brian's podcast. We talked about reverse dieting and like I've had I've, I had, so I had a post the other day that was like, do you ever like, look at who reshares your post? I had a post the other day that was basically like, here's why it feels like you're eating more calories. If you're like, quote unquote, reverse dieting and getting leaner, but you're actually not. And then somebody reshared it and was like, this is why we reverse diet all our clients. And anyways, so I must've not made that clear enough, but I completely forgot where I was going with that. Now we were talking about, (laughs) I don't remember where I was going with that. 
Man, are you are you still in uh, the the photo shoot? Uh, he's he's eating well, so let's not make an excuse. That's, that's our that's our cue to uh, go to the next question. Anyways, let's move on. I'll let you know if I remember where I was going with that. Well, well, we're still I, I we still have a little bit here on the on the reverse dieting um, thing. So, like, basically, you know, how would you define reverse dieting and recovery dieting, and when would you use either? So, uh, Brandon, we'll have you start. And if Jeremiah, anything, if you remember anything, <laughs> thank you, dude. Yeah, absolutely. So, when we, you know, I think it's important to first differentiate. Or, you know, before we differentiate to really look at the commonalities, because when we look at the concepts of reverse diet and recovery diet approaches, I think it's first important to acknowledge the similarities between the two approaches, because fundamentally, they're both post-diet phases aimed at facilitating recovery and mitigating the many metabolic adaptations that are induced from being in a deficit and from losing weight. And lately, a lot of people within our space have spoken about them. And this is what we were just hitting on. You know, they've spoken about them as they're completely completely separate nutritional phases that almost oppose one another. Whereas I kind of see them as two sides of the same coin where they really just fall along a spectrum. So they're really with very similar intentions. They're just going about it in different methods. And really when it comes down to it, the main difference that distinguishes the two approaches, if we really look at it from like a physiological perspective or from an application perspective on how real coaches that are effective and getting results with them, utilize them, you know, the biggest difference that differentiates the two approaches is the speed at which calories are increased. So for me, that's going to depend on the specific client I'm working with. So it's not about one, one being better than the other. It's being about, is one more applicable or more, um, useful for one client versus another. So when it comes to reverse dieting, this is more of a conservative approach where calorie increases are made in a slower manner. So when I personally use a reverse diet with clients, I'll make a fairly substantial increase in calories upon finishing the fat loss phase and starting the reverse diet to get them back to their predicted new maintenance. And then I'll make further increases in calorie intake based on biofeedback metrics. So like their energy, their digestion, their training performance, uh, recovery capacity, and also their body weight. So I'm looking at all these things and I'm assessing all these things in a well-rounded perspective. And generally, I'm going to use a reverse diet approach with clients that are like gen population and lifestyle clients. You know, if I have a client who has reached their fat loss goal and they've improved their health as a result, and they want to maintain the body composition and the health improvements they've made, I'm going to use a reverse dieting approach, especially if that person hasn't gotten to very low levels of body fat. If I have a client that I've gotten from say 25% body fat as a male, and he's metabolically unhealthy, and I get him to 15%, we're going to see improvements in testosterone. So it's not going to be downregulated like, like Jeremiah's, you know what I mean? They're going to be improvements in testosterone, better insulin sensitivity. He's going to have better uh, blood work parameters. So we're going to see uh, decreases in blood pressure. We're going to see decreases in blood glucose. We're going to see better HbA1c. So a three-month marker of insulin sensitivity, better fasting insulin. These are all going to be improved from the weight loss itself. However, what a lot of people within our fitness space, because they're not focused also on the health perspective, they don't realize that all those changes that you got from the fat loss results or from the fat loss phase itself will restore if you go back exactly to the lifestyle that you you were at previously. So if they regain all the body fat, they can do this massive increase in calories. They go into a recovery dieting phase and, and body fat overshoot. They're losing some of those metabolic benefits that they had. Another one that I really like using reverse diets with is when I have a general, you know, a gen population client who I've used, you know, diet breaks with, and they've responded really well and all their biofeedback has come back well, that's an indication that going back to maintenance has had a really beneficial effect on them. And that's essentially, you know, a reverse diet, we're going back to their predicted maintenance, just like we did during a diet break. It's just an elongated phase of that. 
Another thing, you know, if a client has good biofeedback, it's in a good place at the end of the diet and they're just lifestyle lean, there's really no reason to take a much more aggressive approach. Let's bring them back to maintenance and restore things there. Um, another case, and a lot of people overlook this is, you know, and I deal with, and I think I also have to put on the caveat that I work with people from all different backgrounds and my experience is, is pretty vast. So I've seen so many different parameters or so many different situations where reverse dieting was really beneficial. So I've had people that were dieting or quote unquote dieting or losing body fat, but they still have poor insulin sensitivity, or in some cases they're insulin resistant. So I'm not going to make these massive increases right at the end of their fat loss phase, because it's only going to compound that issue because the number one leader to insulin resistance is excess calorie intake. So putting them in a surplus is only going to compound that insulin resistance as well as negatively impact their nutrient partitioning. So they're going to be more likely to store more body fat, especially if they're a highly stressed individual, because if they're highly stressed, they're going to have more of a predisposition due to the high cortisol levels for visceral uh, adipose tissue gain. So meaning in the stomach region, well, with that comes more, um, a higher likelihood for metabolic syndrome. And one of those components is insulin resistance. So it's almost like this vicious cycle that we're going through. Another case, you know, that I might use it with someone really lean. I've had a lot of clients that I've had them in a show prep or a um, photo shoot prep. And in order to feed them up into the show, I'll start reverse dieting them, you know, strategically and in a controlled manner just to feed them up into the show because I have them ready weeks early. But really when it comes down to it, and this is where I really want to differentiate it is regardless of the type of client I'm working with during a reverse, I'm aiming to get them right back to their maintenance. Because really when I think about it, and this is where I actually had a conversation with Jeremiah last week off air, where I had really not heard of a lot of people using like the 10 gram carb increases or the five gram fat increases and keeping someone in a deficit for so much longer. And really what it comes down to is in my mind, Reverse dieting has always been going back to predicted maintenance. Because let's think about it like this. I utilize diet breaks and refeeds with many clients. If I wouldn't keep a client in a deficit during a diet break or a refeed during a fat loss phase, so I wouldn't keep them in a deficit, why would I keep them in a deficit once the fat loss phase has ended? So to me, reverse dieting has always been get back to maintenance right away. And so people, you know, I think the main issue with how some program reverse diets and how some interpret them is that they keep a client or themselves in a deficit for a prolonged period of time. And they only make increases of say 10 grams of carbohydrates or five grams of fat per week. So they're making such minimal changes that they don't lead to any positive benefits and adaptations because they're still in a deficit for a prolonged period of time. It's not enough of an increase to get any tangible increase in their total daily energy expenditure. You know, if you increase 40 calories, that's four calories that you're burning more from your, your thermic effective feeding. It's not upregulating your knee. It's not upregulating your BMR. Uh, you're prolonging the deficit and making it so that you know they're more in a metabolically adapted state. So if you're in a 12-week fat loss phase and then you put someone in a 12-week reverse dieting phase, but they're only getting back up to maintenance at week 12, that reverse dieting phase, you took a 12-week deficit and you made a 24-week period of being in a deficit. So I think that's really where a lot of the arguments have stemmed from, but that's never how I've applied it. So for me, you know, when I hear these arguments, I'm I'm really thinking it's more of a misunderstanding and then also you know, misunderstanding on the part of those that are speaking on it. And then also it could be due to a misapplication on the part of some coaches that really just don't have a good understanding of metabolism, of physiology, and maybe just don't have enough experience realizing that that's not going to work for a lot of clients. Like you cannot keep someone in such a prolonged period of time in a deficit, especially because that's not sustainable, nor are they going to be able to adhere to that. Like really increasing your carbohydrates by 10 grams, like that's so minuscule that most people are going to miss. Yeah. They're not going to overeat that. Yeah. So then 
When we look at recovery dieting, it's a more aggressive approach where calorie increases are made in a much quicker manner, especially at the start of a recovery dieting phase. So when I use a recovery diet phase with my clients, the goal is not to just increase the calories enough to get them out of a deficit and back to maintenance, but to exceed their new predicted maintenance calories and actually put them in a surplus. So that's really the goal of a recovery dieting phase. And generally, I'll utilize a recovery diet as opposed to a reverse diet when a client has gotten extremely lean and to like essential levels of body fat we're staying at this level of leanness would not only be unhealthy, but also wouldn't be sustainable. So it's also it's not only bad for them physiologically, but psychologically. And this is generally only going to apply to contest prep competitors or a client that's gotten photo shoot lean. Like in the case of Jeremiah, I've taken a recovery diet approach. I made a massive increase off the bat of between a thousand. I gave him a range because he went on vacation, but between a thousand and twelve hundred and fifty calories, right off the bat from his pre-diet calories. So you know, I've also used this approach when a new client has come to me after like an extreme crash diet and their biofeedback and their blood mark or uh, blood work are in such a negative place that it's clear that they not only need an increase in energy availability, but they also need to regain weight. So that's another case because think about it. You're going into a surplus, you're going to gain weight in this. Whereas a reverse diet, oftentimes you'll see that someone's weight stabilizes for the first few weeks until you actually get them into a state of positive energy balance. And so really when I look at these two different approaches, you know, when I think about recovery diets, I don't believe that recovery diets are applicable to most lifestyle or gen population clients, as many of them don't need to gain fat to restore their health, nor is that their goal. So really how I look at it is, regardless of whether we take a reverse or recovery diet approach, the goal is to facilitate recovery from the diet. And the approach just really differs in speed. So it's not like we're, these are diametrically opposed. It's like, listen, what is the best approach for the client and the state that they're in currently and where they got to? And also, we also have to consider the psychological condition of the client. So I've worked with many people with backgrounds in disordered eating or body image issues or eating disorders. And so if I know a client is going to have a really bad psychological response, especially from a body image perspective, to regaining fat quickly or regaining weight. I'm going to take a slower approach. I'm going to put them, but but the slower approach doesn't mean that I'm titrating their, their calories up 40 or 50 a week. It means I'm getting them back to maintenance where their weight's going to stabilize. And we're just going to get into a place where their body is in a better homeostatic condition where it can restore. Because when we really look at the research, there's research by Martins that actually looks at this where four weeks in energy balance was enough to reverse a lot of the metabolic adaptations, especially to RMR, to those that had been in a dieted down state. So really that's what we need. And I think that's really the biggest difference between the diet break literature and the metabolic adaptation literature is that the diet break literature, we don't see physiological benefits because they weren't in energy balance long enough. And so two weeks wasn't long enough, but we see in the Martin's research four weeks. So really my goal with clients that may be a little more adverse to weight gain, or their goal is, listen, I got into a sustainable body fat percentage and I have a body composition that I've always wanted. Then really I'm transitioning them with a reverse diet just to basically a maintenance phase. But a lot of times, you know, from a coaching perspective, and I have to be honest about this, sometimes I'll term it as a reverse diet when I'm really putting them in a maintenance phase. And the reason for that is everyone thinks of maintenance as nebulous and they don't see the benefits. And it's not until I get them three, four weeks into that phase, they see the benefits, they feel better. Their sleep is better. Their stress management skills are better. You know, maybe they have less cortisol induced water retention. So they look leaner. They're more filled out from a glycogen perspective. Their training performance has increased. So everything from a physical and mental capacity perspective has improved that I then really 
tell them, listen, if you want to stay here, we're going into a maintenance phase. And then they're like, well, listen, this reverse dieting was working really well. You know, I want to stay in this. And, and then I explained to them really what you are is in really like a holding phase. We can call it whatever you want. If it's going to psychologically benefit you, but really we're trying to maintain the positive adaptations that you've sustained from the diet itself, which are the lower body fat percentage, the better metabolic health and the better psychological viewpoint that you have of yourself. If you had confidence issues, I'm not saying getting lean is going to, you know, uh, completely eviscerate them. But if you feel and you look better at 15% body fat, then you start it. Then when you started at 25% body fat, and that's not unhealthy for you, 15% body fat is a very healthy body fat percentage for many males, or say 20, 22 for a female, you know, that's a place that you could stay and you can live. And so I want to help clients be able to attain their goals in a method that doesn't hurt them. So if a client came to me and said, listen, I want to stay at 5% body fat, Jeremiah, if Jeremiah had told me after the shoot, hey, I want to stay here, I would have had a really long conversation with him. Like, not only is this unsustainable, not only is this going to be physiologically you know, harmful, but it's just from a long-term perspective, I know you want to gain muscle. So this is going to be counterproductive to your goal. But if someone's really happy with where they've gotten to, our biggest issue as an industry, as a society is weight gain. If we really look at the, you know, I was looking at weight loss statistics recently and really, or weight gain statistics recently. And really what we see is an average, the CDC reports that we see an average increase in adults between the ages of 18 to 55 of 1.1 to 2.2 pounds per year gained each and every year across the life course. So within a, in a decade, you're gaining at least 11 to 22 pounds on average as a US American. Then if we look at the obesity increases or the rates of obesity increase, we see that rates of obesity in US population, as well as in Canada, uh, the UK, Australia, and New Zealand. And I know it's specifically because those are the areas that I have the most clientele in. So I looked at these specifically. All three, all uh, five of those regions have seen at least a tripling of obesity rates from 1975 to 2016. So I can imagine that it's even worse now. So really, we have a weight maintenance issue as a society and as an industry. So if I can help clients, whether it be through a reverse diet or a recovery diet, I don't care what we have to call it. I'm here like in the real world as a coach. I don't care who's arguing online. It's really about how am I going to best set up my clients long term? Yeah, every, everybody knows how to like, for some people, it's tougher, but most people know how to lose a weight. It's just, it's keep, it's keeping it off. And, and like you said, maintaining it, that's really the big issue. So I, I agree with everything you said. I think that using a recovery diet, again, again, if you, if you know, like what the definition is of it, it makes sense that like you would use that more for people that are like more advanced and they are just trying to like in Jeremiah's situation, you're just trying to get them out of being super lean, right? Because we know that that's, that's not great. And then a reverse diet, again, is going to be used more for like general lifestyle, um, gen pop people. And that's, that's who I work with more so than I don't, I don't have any like competitors or anybody getting as lean as that right now. And so like, I just use it for basically what you said, right? So like, just really making sure that you don't overshoot your maintenance, right? As like you just said, people have a problem of seeing their weight trend up. And so again, in that post-diet period, if you don't have any sort of plan or structure or anything like that, what happens? People usually just see weight come up super quick. And when you do that, you gain, you gain probably mostly body fat because you're probably not training or anything like that. Maybe you are, but you're probably going to gain mostly body fat. And then over time, you're just going to, you know, if you get in this cycle of like you, you lose weight, and maybe you don't do it with the greatest of methods. You maybe lose a little bit of muscle in the process. And then you have this rebound, you gain fat and then you do it over again. You just slowly over time, just see this like worsening of body composition. So like, again, making sure you don't overshoot your maintenance. Um, and again, the main goal is to just get you to your, to your maintenance calories, right? Cause like you said, once we get there, you're going to start to see things. There's going to be beneficial adaptations. Yeah. At that point. Right. And then 
And I think the and the other truth with this too that I like to explain to clients too is I think maybe also there's this like uh, they, they don't realize what's going to happen, and I think people also think that even if even for a Gen Pop person, like I don't think you're going to see a bunch of weight gain post diet, but if you also think that you're going to diet down and then you're going to be at that weight forever, like and you're not going to have any weight gain after that, I also think that you're you're just your expectations are off there. Uh, Brandon, I know you, it looks like you, you got something you want to say real quick. Yeah, I actually, I, I want to hit on that. So the reason I say like with reverse dieting, I'm saying, you know, if someone is opposed to body fat gain, they don't want to see their body fat, their body composition change. I think we have to differentiate between body fat and, and weight. body weight. The reason yeah. for, and there's multitudes, but I want to explain this to everyone in the audience because I've worked with a thousand plus clients at this point and also many competitors. And what we have to realize is your lowest scale weight is not your true weight. That's not mm-hmm. your diet weight. I don't, you know, if your last week, your fat loss phase, you hit, you know, Jeremiah's case, 177. I told him that was his depleted weight. We have to think about at the end of a fat loss phase, you're most likely on your lowest amount of calories and your lowest amount of carbohydrates. So just from that perspective, you've lost um, water intracellularly, you've lost glycogen storage. So for every gram of glycogen that we store, we store about three to four grams of water. So with that, you could have lost pounds of just intramuscular, which we want glycogen storage. We also have to think about the context that muscle is between 60 to 65% water. So now you're almost like a deflated balloon. Well, just increasing carbohydrate intake, even going back to maintenance. So for instance, say you were in a 500 calorie deficit, you were losing weight at approximately one pound per week. So you're in a 500 calorie deficit. I increase your calories. I do a back calculation. I see that your weight trajectory, the last four weeks of your diet, you were losing an average of one pound per week. So I say, listen, this means that this client was in a 500 calorie deficit. I back calculated it. I'm going to increase their calories by 500. We're going to see some, you know, just like on the way down, we see some adaptive decreases. We're going to see some adaptive increases on the way up. However, you may see that your body weight increases because say that I increase that all through the form of carbohydrates. So I gave you 125 grams of carbohydrates. And with that came 125 grams just from the carbohydrates themselves. And then say another, um, you know, 450 or 500 grams of, um, water itself. So 500 grams plus the 125, that's 625. You do that by 2.2. We're looking at around, you know, 1.2 pounds just gained from that, you know, just from the fact that you just increased carbohydrates, but you're still at maintenance. So what we have to realize your lowest weight is not your true weight. So don't get hung up on that. When we actually look into the literature, it shows that weight maintenance, successful weight loss maintenance is between one to 3% of your weight. So we have to realize that there are going to be fluctuations and there's going to be for a multitude of reasons. We're going to see an increase in carbohydrate storage in the muscle and in the liver. So you're going to increase storage there. And generally on average, most people have between 350 to 500 grams of carbohydrate storage in muscle and about 80 to hundred grams in liver. And that's for a 70 kilogram person when they've done research. So if you're heavier than 70 kilograms, you're probably going to have even greater storage than that. So you have, you know, pounds of storage capacity just from carbohydrates, which means no adipose tissue gain. Realize when I say it's getting stored in intramuscular or in hepatic uh, glycogen storage, that means that none of that is body fat. That is not going through the process of denolipogenesis. It's not creating fat. That's all going stored and it's going to be utilized when you actually exercise. So we're going to see an increase in that, but also you have increased gut content. So now you have more food coming in the system. You're going to have water weight fluctuations. Maybe with that increase in carbohydrates, you're eating more sodium. So realize that your lowest weight is not your true weight. So maintenance is not 
Jeremiah staying at 177 pounds. It's replenishing those glycogen, getting them back to maintenance calories, and then seeing what that weight is. And often, really successful weight loss maintenance is about five to six pounds above what your lowest weight was. And so a lot of people, they see that increase even during a reverse diet and they get scared. So it's not about that. What we have to realize is when you increase five to six pounds of water and glycogen, do you know what you just gained? Lean body mass, because lean body mass doesn't just refer to muscle. It also refers to electrolyte concentrations, organ mass. It refers to glycogen. So all these things are actually, if you went on a DEXA, you'd appear more muscular. They would tell you, hey, you have more muscle mass than you had. You know, it could be a week from your last, you got a DEXA, your last day of dieting when you're depleted. Then a week later, on maintenance calories, you haven't tr truly gained any body fat whatsoever, but it's going to show you as having more muscle mass. So we have to get a, a we have to detach ourselves from the scale. I really try to work on this with clients. Listen, you may lose weight initially. You may have this adaptive increase. I increase your calories. You may lose weight just because you were stressed and you were retaining water, or you may suck up all those carbohydrates, fill out your muscles. You're going to look better. You're going to have better pumps in the gym, but your scale weight is going to go up. However, you're at maintenance. It's physiologically impossible to gain fat in neutral energy balance. That's what energy balance is, meaning your calorie intake and your calorie ex expenditure or your calorie burn are matched. You cannot gain fat in that position unless you're extremely highly stressed and there's very nuanced conversations that we could go into in terms of cortisol elevations and pre, you know, predisposition towards um, storing visceral fat as compared to subcutaneous fat and this, that, and the other. Most people, they're not going to experience that. So you're not gaining fat at maintenance. Realize maintenance is a maintenance of your body composition and body fat, not your body weight. And that's where we have to be okay with these fluctuations. So that's where I try to explain that to clients. Listen, you're not going to be your lowest weight for the rest of your life, but if we stay six pounds, give or take within that range, that's great. And it's the same thing with the menstrual cycle. It's like, listen, your menstrual cycle weight, you know, we have to do a comparative analysis, you know, week one of your follicular phase versus next cycles, next months, week one of your follicular phase. And same thing with the first week of your luteal phase. And, you know, next month's, you know, first week of your luteal phase. And we can't just do this, you know, always looking at these numbers and really isolating these variables and saying, oh, this means I gained fat or this means, you know, I'm not in maintenance anymore. We have to really, you know, take a step back, be a little bit more analytical, be a little bit more objective and realize maintenance, just like our maintenance calories are arranged that differ based on our activity, our lifestyle, our stress, our sleep, so is your maintenance body weight. So don't just, you know, if you got down to 200 pounds, you feel really accomplished and you auto automatically a week after going to a reverse diet or two weeks after you're up to two or three or 206. Don't think you failed that you've, you've regained all this. You've probably regained nothing except you look better. You're performing better and you're reversing some of the metabolic adaptations that were sustained from being in a deficit because you went back to maintenance calories. That's why I think it's so important to have a coach like during this time to talk you through that, right? Because what, I mean, what would you typically see happen in that situation? Say somebody does this, they're all ready to go freaking, let's do a reverse diet. They hit their numbers and then they see weight fluctuate, go up a little bit. What do they probably do in that situation? Oh, dude, I got to go right back into fat loss dieting. And then you just end up getting in this freaking cycle that you just do, you know, just, and so I think having a coach there can finally get you out of that freaking cycle of just doing that over and over again. One thing, cause you kind of hit on this, like I wanted to just kind of go over like, I guess like kind of a myth maybe or, or something, but like you, you kind of talked about like, you know, if like some people do, they do like increase their calories and they see weight loss go down. Like you kind of hit on like the stress is probably playing a big role in that. And just in, in sometimes like you could be it, it for you at that point, like it's just easier for you to adhere to that calorie amount than it is to like what you were doing before. Right. I think that's something that could be going on there. But one thing I wanted to hit on real quick was I think there's kind of this myth and I thought of this too, like this was something that I fell into as well. Um, but like, and I do think adding a little bit of muscle can help with this, right? Because if you can reverse out, 
you get it maintenance for a little while, you build some muscle. I do think you can maybe make your future fat loss phase easier, but I don't, but a lot of times people like kind of use reverse dieting as this thing of like, Oh, your future fat loss phases are going to be easier. But, um, and Brandon, we've hit on this before about like the phenotypes. It's like, if you struggle with weight loss, like have a hard time, like maybe you have these metabolic adaptations that happen, not like going into a reverse diet, getting to your maintenance and then coming back later. doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to have an easy time losing fat in the future, right? Like how your body responds to an energy deficit is probably how it's going to mostly be, right? Like if you have a tough time losing, like say you just have metabolic adaptation that happens, like it's, it's more extreme for you going into maintenance during that time is going to help you get out of those metabolic adaptations. But once you go back into an energy deficit, it's like, you're still going to have those adaptations that probably are going to still arise. Now you can improve your methods in terms of how you go with fat loss, right? Like if you have poor methods, like, and you improve that, that's obviously going to help. But again, if you have these adaptations there, where when you get into energy deficit, it's not like those are just going to go away. There's, there's two sides to this. So I want to hit on both because I do hear these arguments. So first let's talk about will reverse dieting make your or recovery dieting, reverse dieting, whatever we want to go with. Will it make your next diet easier? Potentially. And here's the reason why. If you are someone that has chronically dieted, you had a yo-yo approach where you went through binge restrict cycles and you were chronically in a state of restriction. And then you just overdid it on the weekends. I often speak about this. Jeremiah and I have had this conversation. You and I have had this conversation on podcast. A, a big percentage of the clients that I get are what I call a weekday dieter. They diet, they over-restrict during the week, they overeat on the weekend. So they have poor dietary habits, especially around calorie balance. And so with that, if we are to reverse diet, you start nailing your tracking. You get much better in terms of your consistency of calorie tracking than calorie intake. You're much more consistent with increasing your calorie intake across the week. But really what we're doing is we're smoothing out some of those fluctuations between the massive deviations between what you eat during the week and what you eat during the weekend. Can it make dieting easier in the future? Yes, because you've developed better skills. You become more consistent. Your tracking accuracy has improved. Then also you've gotten out of a state of restriction because even those that aren't in an energy deficit. So the weekday dieter generally isn't losing weight because they're undoing their deficit every single weekend. So they're in a calorie deficit and usually an over-restrictive calorie deficit Monday through Thursday or Monday through Friday. And then come Friday, it's all bets are off. And they eat and it's such a surplus that it undoes their deficit from the week. So they basically undone all the work that they've done. So they're in a state of positive energy balance or in a calorie surplus. So they're gaining weight or they're staying weight neutral. They're staying right at this weight that they're unhappy with, a body fat percentage and a body composition that they're unhappy with. So reverse dieting, taking a strategic approach where they really dial in all these habits, all these behaviors, they really align their lifestyle and they align their actions, both dietarily, training-wise, movement-wise, with their ambitions, so their goals that they have for themselves, and they align that. The next dieting phase, they're going to have better habits in place, better behaviors in place. They're going to be able to execute things better. And also, that's from a physical perspective, a physiological perspective. Then we look at the uh, the psychological perspective. This person has been in a constant state of restriction. And I'm someone that often I encounter individuals that are more in a state of mental restriction than they are in a state of physiological physical or physiological restriction, meaning they have such a bad and poor relationship with food that they feel like they're always dieting and they kind of overlook, they bury their heads in the sand. They kind of overlook those slip-ups that they have, those 5,000 calorie days, those days that they eat everything in sight, those binge days. And they kind of just like swipe it under the rug or, you know, brush it under the rug. And so by getting someone consistently eating more calories and they're seeing the benefits from them, they're seeing that their weight isn't going up. They're having better training performance. They're feeling better. Their stress is managed better. Then their next diet, they're going to have a better relationship with food. So that's where we work on the habits, behaviors, but also their mental 
relationship with food so that when they do go back into an energy deficit, they didn't spend. So for instance, I have a lot of, especially females, unfortunately, that come to me with years of dieting history. They have this history of restriction, both from a physical and a mental perspective. So they've never really taken an elongated period of time where they weren't quote unquote dieting and they weren't in what they consider a deficit, whether it's physical or mental. But then I put them in a reverse dieting phase. I get them back to maintenance. They're not restricting their food intake. They're getting to eat more and more, you know, throughout the course of the phase. We're building up their calorie intake. We're combining that. We're periodizing their nutrition with their training. So as we increase their training output and the stimulus of their training, they're building muscle. So they're they're building metabolic currency. So yes, maybe they get a, a couple, you know, a couple calorie increases from increases in in muscle tissue because muscle, you know, it only burns about six calories per pound added. So with that, now they've been out of a state of restriction. So their next diet, they're more adherent. They're better able to sustain it. And so they respond both physiologically and psychologically better. However, when we actually look at the metabolic phenotype research, we see that those that are thrifty, think about thrifty, it means you're conservative with energy. So you conserve energy when they're in a state of energy balance. When you're at maintenance calories, we generally see, and what's really interesting about the literature is that now we're getting a lot more conclusive evidence that those that have a thrifty metabolic phenotype, those are often those individuals that they are easy gainers. Let's let's contrast them as that. They think that they gain fat easy. What we really see is that they have less of an adaptive increase in their metabolic rate and their total daily energy expenditure when they go into a surplus. So they more readily capture energy Energy. So if you go into a surplus, you're going to be more likely to store it. Now, when you go into a deficit, you're going to downregulate your energy expenditure to conserve energy. You are thrifty in all types of, you know, in all um, phases, but it's only when you deviate away from maintenance. So if you're in a reverse diet and you're technically at maintenance, you actually, the, the research actually indicates that those with a thrifty metabolic phenotype actually have a higher resting energy expenditure. So they at baseline have are able to eat more calories than even those with the spendthrift. And the spendthrift individuals, so those that have a spendthrift metabolism or a spendthrift phenotype, are those that see less adaptive decreases during a deficit, meaning that they don't suffer from as much metabolic adaptation. Weight loss is a little bit easier for them. But also, when they go into overfeeding conditions, they have more adaptive increases. So those are the individuals that if you look at the study by Levine, 1999, there were certain individuals that when they overfed them by 1,000 calories for eight weeks, some individuals only gained, you know, one or two pounds, whereas the predicted weight gain in that study was supposed to be 16 plus pounds. And it was because they had unconscious increases in their knee was one of the main things. But we also see increases in resting metabolic rate and other parameters of total daily energy expenditure. However, when we look at them at energy balance, they actually have slightly lower of resting energy expenditure. So this is how I really like to contrast this research. We're all given a different card, or different hand of cards. However, we have to play them to the best of my, our ability. So if you see you're someone that readily gains fat when you go into a surplus, or it's really hard for you to lose weight, maybe going to a reverse diet is the best thing for you and just going back to maintenance because you're gonna be, have a better ability to maintain a higher calorie level. But we have to realize that your metabolic phenotype, generally, we also have to realize that no, no person is one or another. They're, we're more on a spectrum. So maybe someone's more thrifty than they are spendthrift and some are more spendthrift than they are thrifty. However, regardless of the type that you may be or you may align with, whether it's physically or mentally, there are benefits and there are drawbacks. For every gimme, there's a gotcha. However, when we really look at it, you are not going to be able to change. It doesn't matter if you're reverse diet, whatever it is. It's not that you're going to change your physiological response to dieting. However, you can improve your approach. You can improve your mindset. And then you can also improve 
all the other parameters. We really look at like the body fat set point, settling point, and dual intervention models. And we see that there are physiological factors that impact the body fat percentage we can maintain. There are environmental factors, and then there's lifestyle and behavioral factors. So really, let's focus on what we can control. If you can improve your habits, improve your uh, behavior, optimize your food environment, and then also improve your lifestyle to really be more aligned with your goals, you're going to make fat loss dieting easier. Does that mean that if we put you in a metabolic chamber that we wouldn't see the same down regulations if you're more on the line of the thrifty metabolism? No. However, that shouldn't matter because you're going to be able to make the process easier by the approach that you take. And that's where coaching really comes into play because I get a lot of people because I've spoken on metabolic adaptation so much that they, whether it's that they really are, or they just mentally based on their experiences, bad experiences, poor experiences with dieting in the past, they come to me and they always say, I've extremely adaptive metabolism. I've always struggled with weight loss. I've been able to get those individuals much leaner later on down the road, but I never put them initially in a deficit because they're already coming from a mindset and a physical perspective where they've been so beaten down by diets and deficits in the past that they're not in the place internally, physically, or mentally to go into a diet. So I put them into a primer phase. We optimize everything else, everything within our control, their internal health, their habits, their behaviors, their approach, and also their mindset. And within that, it makes dieting easier. But does that mean that I've really reversed any adaptations that they're going to sustain once we get into a deficit? No, this isn't like a magical drug that we can undo things. However, there are always interventions that are within our control. And then there are ones that are outside of our control. And the reason I've spoken so much on metabolic adaptation over the years is I want us to focus on the factors that we can control. And instead of getting caught up and really disillusioned and disheartened by things that are outside of our control, like whether we think we have a slow or fast metabolism, or we have low thyroid or whatever it may be, you have to realize that focusing on the factors that you can control are going to lead to much better outcomes 10 out of 10 times. Yeah, no, I, I, again, yeah, I definitely, like I said, the biggest thing I want to hit on that was like, you can't reverse that like phenotype that you have. You can't, you know, again, those adaptations that are going to happen. But like you said, you can reverse dieting, getting you to your maintenance is going to, like you said, like get these people out of that psychological, like kind of jail that they're in of like always restricting and stuff like that. And that in itself, like indirectly is going to help make future fat loss phases easier. Like you said, because they're finally freaking getting out of that, like just mental jail that they're in there with it. Um, but yeah, so no, I'm glad you went into like more detail on that for sure. Jeremiah, sorry, man, we, we left you hanging there for, I think, what, 20 minutes or so. <laughs> I don't think I have anything to add there. I think you guys summed it up beautifully. Cool. Um, I'm not sure if you guys have a little bit more time or if we want to uh, wrap this one up. I got to dip here pretty quickly. Yeah, cool. Um, we went, I, I knew once I saw these questions about reverse dieting, I knew that we would freaking, this is all we were going to get through. I knew we were going to get through any of the other ones. <laughs> Two questions um, seems to be a good bet. Yep. We keep adding to the list though. That's good though. Now we, if we ever, for whatever reason, <laughs> need questions, we got a ton. So um, guys, it was great chatting with you again, man. I I, I love, you know, taking 90 minutes to, to do this. There's a ton of great information in here. Um, is there anything that you guys want to leave the audience with? I think, again, just taking a little bit deeper look at, again, when you're looking at reverse dieting, building phases, mini cuts, anything of that nature, again, understanding like there's only so much nuance we can put into something like Instagram. And again, just considering the context of it before we just like, hey, this person did this thing and they have the physique I want. So thus that automatically means like this is right away the right path for me. So I think, again, just considering the context digging a little bit deeper, even just listening to podcasts like this, but that would really be my main thought. I don't think there's like a right or wrong time. I do think there's a right or wrong time. Let me rephrase that. But I don't think like reverse dieting, like in the right context is bad. Again, 
recovery dieting again there's a time and a place for each but again the context is key well yeah no i i completely agree with that jeremiah and i think another thing for the audience out there you know we often get these questions and a lot of people they want like this specific answer they want this straight up answer and there's so much nuance and i often struggle on podcasts because i do have such a background with so many different you know classes and and demographics with clients and i'm always trying to consider context so often sometimes i you know i end up going on an answer that's much elongated but i do really try to provide some value within the uh information that i provide and also try to inspire some critical thinking but really when it comes down to it i i really want to encourage the audience out there you're going to hear our take and if you really notice we're not a fan of either side, or we're not an, a pure advocate for either camp. And the reason for that is often the truth lies in the middle. You have, you know, person A's perspective, person B's perspective. Generally, it's really in the middle where we really find the best middle ground for what could be the best approach for the general person. But also, we have to realize that it's going to be individual specific, uh, situation specific. Like, you know, it could be one individual went from gen pop and then all of a sudden decided to do a competition prep. So, all the diets in the previous, in the past, they've done reverse dieting. But now, a coach presents them with, listen, we got a recovery diet. And now they're like, listen, I've always been a reverse dieter. I don't know about this recovery diet. So don't, you know, take everything with a grain of salt. And then also realize that everything within nutrition and fitness, any of the information that you guys get, it's always sexier to give you a, a straight answer and to be able to say, this is the way. However, that's often misleading. So really be cautious. The experts in this field generally will admit when they don't know something or they say a lot of it depends, you know, and they'll give you context on which it depends. And so I really think that often it's easier or it's uh, a little bit more, um, I guess, enticing to go with someone that really is, you know, tied to one belief and they're giving you all the answers you want to hear, but realize, take that with a grain of salt and also be a little bit cautionary with that. And then really when it comes down to anything within health, nutrition, especially fitness training, there is no black and white and there shouldn't be, there shouldn't be like on or off and these dichotomous viewpoints on things. There is a time and a place for every approach and every diet can work until it doesn't. And every approach can work until it may not, you know, it can work given it's, it's done for the right person. So really when it comes down to reverse dieting or recovery dieting, think about the, all the context that's, that's being done. And also if you're hearing others that you trust within this space, and I wouldn't suggest that you don't trust them. However, also peel back the layers of the onion. Look, you know, someone's talking about recovery dieting, but their whole population is competitors. And then someone's always, you know, talking about reverse dieting and all they work with is gen pop. So realize that they're coming from their scope based on their perspective and their experience. And then there will be others like us that we work with people from all different backgrounds. And I've taken people to the Olympia stage. And then I've also, you know, worked with, you know, lifestyle Lisa. And so I'm going to say, listen, I'm going to utilize whatever approach fits that client best, you know, what they need as well as what they want. So really, with everything, you know, take things with a grain of salt, but also realize that we can't just take what's put on an Instagram post or an infographic and take that as the holy gospel and run with that information. I love it. Awesome. Uh, again, great chatting with you guys. And we're, uh, we're going to do this again next month. So talk to you guys then.